Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and today my guest is Walter Wolf, who has created The Right Rehab, which guides families and individuals through the very confusing world of addiction and mental disorder treatment, insurance, and how to pay for it without falling prey to the grifters and imposters who will do just about anything to get your hard-earned money. So imagine that you are awakened by a call at 3 a.m., and this caller is informing you that your loved one is in a crisis due to addiction or mental illness. Maybe he or she has been incarcerated, hospitalized, or even left for dead from an overdose. Who would you turn to and what would you do next? You're in a panic. What's next? So Walter got that very call when his own family member was in crisis. There was no playbook, but fortunately he did know who to call, a friend in the treatment world who knew exactly what to do. We don't all have that. That's why he's here today. And that got him thinking about the 42 billion, not million, billion unregulated treatment industry with its share of grifters and toll-free number centers standing by to promise you anything to get your credit card number. I keep thinking about psychic hotline for some reason. So who protects the uninitiated who are terrified to the point of doing anything and everything that they're told that will save their their loved ones? So Walter joins me today to answer that question and more. And I'm going to warn you, this is probably going to be a difficult conversation to listen to, but it's important. So, Walter, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Denise. That was very, very well said. Thank you. Well, listen, I have your book. I don't have the book book as it's being published and being sent to me, but I do have a galley. So I read it over the weekend, and my stomach hurt. I mean, it really made my stomach hurt. Listen, the truth is that all of us are impacted in some way or form by addiction, alcoholics, you know, mental illness. It it impacts us, whether it's in our business, whether it's in our family, sometimes both. So we have a lot to talk about today. So before we jump into this, can you tell people a bit about you and a little bit more why you wrote this book and created this this product or this this website, rather. Well, thank you. And as you very well described, it was 11 years ago when I got that phone call. And I, of course, had no idea what to do. I knew absolutely nothing about addiction. I knew absolutely nothing about what do you do in this type of situation other than I called one of my very dearest friends who did know. And within 24 hours, my loved one was in uh, detox at one of the finest facilities on the planet. And then I started thinking is that how lucky I was because what if I didn't know my friend? What if I didn't know anybody? Which is what most people are facing when they're they're in this type of situation. So I – and at the same time, I started getting phone calls from people who I didn't know and then people – 
friends and then people who were friends of friends and then people who I didn't even know because they would say, hey, Walter, I heard about your issue, your problem with your with your loved one. I've got the same problem. What the hell do I do? What the heck do I do? So I started with, through my friend. He introduced me to some of the finest people in the treatment world, the good people, as we call them, and who are in it for the right reasons and who are the most ethical people in the business and most ethical people to begin. And I started helping people get to the facility that is the right treatment for that particular individual. And then pretty soon, I just fell in love with doing it. So I stopped doing what I was doing at the time and I decided to do this full time, and it's been um, it's been a it's been an experience. And as you said in the intro, uh, I have seen and I have witnessed things that uh, I had never ever thought that I would see in my life. And but I'll tell you, it is very rewarding in the sense that you are helping people who otherwise would not get any help or the help that they would get would be even more harmful to them. Does that make sense? Well, oh, that's, yes. That's what I, that's, that's, what I, I, that's what I did. And that makes absolute sense to me. Listen, in my own family, we've had issues. I personally don't know anybody's friends, oh, business partner who doesn't have something going on in their family or their business. And now with COVID, you know, this, don't even get me started on that. But, you know, now with mandates and everybody being locked down, I think it just exacerbates mental issues. And then we're dealing with a lot of suicides. We're a mess. I mean, let's face it, we're a mess. Well, you just hit upon something that is so unfortunately true. In fact, there have been lots, there have been some studies about what COVID's effect on adolescents, especially on their mental health, what it's been. The bottom line is that it has doubled the amount of adolescents who are going through extreme mental difficulties, such as depressions, uh, anxiety, separation, uh, excuse me, separation anxiety from their friends, from their social life. It's really had a very, very profound effect. And the pandemic has. And then when you discuss how it has affected so many people in this nation, I can tell you that there's over 61, there's 61.2 million people in this nation over the age of 18 who have either a mental disorder and or substance use disorder. And that is enough people to populate California, Oregon, Washington, Montana, Idaho, and Nevada. Now imagine that part of the country being populated by people who need mental disorder help and or substance use disorder help. That's a lot of people. And it's a really sad fact as well that when I meet people at a social function or whatever it may be, eventually the, the discussion gets around to, so Walter, what do you do? And when I tell them, well, I'm an interventionist, you can see people's eyes just narrowing on my face, on, in my, on my eyes. And they say to me, invariably, they say, 
we need to talk. And that's because there are now so many families who are not only directly impact, impacted by either addiction and or mental disorder, or they at least know somebody who is going through that ordeal. It is so pervasive. And if there's one bright spot in this whole issue, in this whole matter, it is more and more people are starting to talk about it. And they're starting to admit that, yes, I have been, my family has been touched by this as well. Because so many of these issues are related to previous family, to members, other members of your family. Because if it is, it is true that if there is a mental disorder in a family member, either a grandparent or an aunt or uncle, whomever it may be, your odds of getting that disease are greater than if that disease did not exist doesn't mean you're going to have it. It just means that the odds of you getting it are just a bit more, just a bit greater. Listen, I completely understand that. We've got two of my siblings are bipolar, and we traced it back to my my grandmother. And I'll be honest with you, I monitored myself for that until I was old enough to not have to worry about it too, too much more. But I was very aware of it, and it scared the crap out of me. And I know well, so I many people who have, you know, their siblings suffer from it. They're maybe a parent or a grandparent, and it's frightening because if you are in line for it, and so many of us are, thank God, I I managed to skip alcoholism and all the other things because I was watching and monitoring and just saying, nope, not going to do it. I mean, I was just very mentally prepared to not have anything like that happen to me. And I don't even know if that makes sense or not, but I just wasn't having it. So there you have it. Well, well, I'll tell you, that makes total sense. Because when you figure that 20% of adults uh, have some sort of mental disorder, the good news about that, if there is any good news, is that with today's medication and with more and more people, I mean, over 20 million people actually opted, you know, to, to actually went to treatment for their mental disorder. There's so many people, you have no idea that they have some type of mental disorder, which could be anxiety, it could be depression, uh, it could be even a mild form of schizophrenia. But because of today's advances in medicine, it's actually been um, the most people can lead a, a normal life. So, for instance, mental illness is divided up into two different categories. One is called AMI or any mental illness, which encompasses all uh, types of mental illness, whether it's mild, moderate, or even extreme. And then there's a, there's a por- portion of the, and that's called AMI, any mental illness. Now, a sub, subcategory of AMI is SMI, which is called serious mental illness. And that means the, those are people who are suffering so much or so greatly from their mental disorder that it has totally disrupted their lives. So they are unable to lead, let's say, you know, work or 
go to school or it's 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 a serious part of unfortunately has a very very serious effect on our on one's life if you have the SM, if you have SMI or serious mental illness, which usually could be um, the personality disorder, schizophrenia, really deep, deep depression, it, it, can, really, it, can, really, it can really, really affect your life. It affects everybody around you. And they pro- my observation over my life has been they don't know and they don't care. They're in their own hell and we can just deal with it. Well, yes, and and matter of fact, when you talk about um, the uh, the mental uh, disorders, you can say that, uh, like, for instance, most common types of mental disorders are uh, depression, and, um, of course, I already mentioned anxiety disorders, and then there's obsessive-compulsive disorder, uh, bipolar. I, there's, there's that in my family. And post-traumatic stress disorder is a major, major source of, of mental illness. For instance, in the state of Oklahoma, as an example, one-third of all females have been, the, have been subject to some sort of trauma, such as uh, emotional trauma, physical trauma, um, sexual trauma, experiential trauma. Trauma is so much more prevalent in today's world, especially for females, that it's about time that we recognize it much more than what we have in the past because we really can do something about it. And, and people, if they are treated, they really, they can lead co- completely normal and productive lives. Walter, I have to ask, why are women in more danger from this? Well, that's actually well, that's a really actually good question, question, and I don't have a don't really have good a really answer to that. I can I tell, you tell you that even for adolescents, um, it's gotten much worse. I, I went ahead and said earlier that the uh, rate of uh, mental disorders for adolescents has doubled over, uh, compared to pre-pandemic. There is a facility in Atlanta uh, which is for mental health for adolescents. It's called Hillside, and it's an amazing facility. And they have both genders. Well, just recently, just last week, when I had a conversation with uh, with one of the clinicians there, they used to have uh, five uh, cottages for females and two cottages for males. Well, today... They have so many females, unfortunately. They had to change one of those male cottages to female. It's just an epidemic, unfortunately, with adolescents as an example, and most of them are female. Now, there's a reason for that, obviously, but I can't tell you exactly what that is, but that is what's happening. You know, a lot... I'm going to probably sound like a complete idiot, and I'll apologize before I sound like an idiot. But so so much of what we're talking about, I I look at people and I watch people and I think, you've got crappy manners. You don't have any social skills. Your your mama masked your soft spot too hard. You know, I mean, I'm a people watcher. And 
I catch myself wondering again, this is a silly question, so go ahead and, you know, answer me as best you can. But is a lot no of it, it doesn't necessarily, all of it come toward, you know, for ingrained mental illness, a lot of it I think is you're just not taught anything. People really don't have manners. They're rude. They're on their cell phones all the time. They push. They run into people with their cars. People in some ways are just kind of turning to crap. And I'm wondering if it's because they've got no childhood training. I don't just and that's a tiny, tiny part of it, but I watch it and it bothers me. Well, you're talking about something which uh, is, um, my goodness, that could be any number of reasons. And uh, all I can say is, in my opinion, uh, a a great deal of what I see uh, from other people is, if you you ask me, it's people learn it from home. Right. They learn it from the environment in which they live. Yes. And especially when it comes to racism, but when what you're talking about, I do believe that they, people pattern what they, when you see, when someone sees their parents, for instance, do something, they, a child will automatically, you know, figure out, okay, well, that's okay for me to do because mom or dad is doing it. That's been my experience. So, what you're saying is absolutely true, and we're going through a really, really unique time in our country. And I am fearful of what the next 12, 18 months are going to bring. And I think a lot of it has to do with there are a lot of issues with people. And my goodness, I wish there were a way that we could have as many people who want it to be able to you know, find out what's going on in their own bodies and their own minds and somehow let's talk about it let's 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 manage this issue exactly and you were talking about situational awareness earlier i don't know that you actually said that but that's what i took away from part of what you were saying but so much of what we see and that we model we do it because we don't know any better you know, people are really not taught manners. I'll be honest with you. If I'm in a restaurant and somebody is chewing with their mouth open and talking, <laughs> I have been known to leave the table and move somewhere else. It's either that or try to kill them, and I don't want to go to jail. You know, I've, I've had friends who are – some of them are, are doctors. Some, I mean, some of them are incredibly, uh, incredibly bright and, and very well accomplished – and even in their 20s, um, you see that kind of behavior. I, if I have no choice. I go ahead and I tell them. I said, listen, I want to tell you something that you should know. Is that we're, you know, when you're talking and eating, you've got to close your mouth. And they look at me and what? They've been told that before. And then all of a sudden, now they're being reminded. So, you know, if it's somebody who you know, if it's somebody about whom you care, it's up to you to say something. I got to tell you, it really is. And and we're <laughs> thank you. I mean, we've moved a bit from mental illness, but that goes back to manners, which I think, to some degree, if you have no manners, if you have no genuine upbringing where there's compassion and empathy and awareness, you're almost going to head down the road for mental illness, whether you want to or not. Am I wrong? 
No, you're absolutely correct. And that actually hits upon people's attitudes toward, towards addiction and also towards the mental disorders. The, my whole point about addiction, for instance, is that addiction is a disease. It's a chronic disease. It's not the kind of disease that you can cure, but it is the kind of disease that you can learn to manage. And that's what treatment is all about. And however, but there's still a, a great population in this country, a big population in this country, who are relatively unenlightened. And they believe that addiction is actually a matter of choice. And it's, it's something which people you know, choose to do. And addiction is not a matter of bad morals or low morals or, or bad character when it's something that you can fix with, you know, just say no or, you know, just buck up, will you? Unfortunately, it's a disease. Now, people, more and more people are starting to realize that. And that's why, as I mentioned before, more and more people are able, are able to say to me, listen, I need to talk to you, because people are starting to get enlightened. However, we still have a great deal of people in our country who are not. And it's not until that people really, really understand that something like addiction is a disease will we really, really, I think, start making really great progress in being able to treat people, more people, so that they can have very full and very productive lives. In your book, and at the very beginning of the book, I had it in front of me. Well, I didn't print it out. I was in front of my computer because I had to read it in a PDF. But one of the things that I was scribbling notes down was that you learned from those in recovery that resources don't get the victim sober. They are only the tools in helping get the individual sober. And that sobriety occurs when the victim genuinely wants to get sober and is willing to put the work in to get there, and it's completely up to that individual. I have to tell you, I think at some some level I always knew that. We cannot place our will on on other individuals, all we can do is help them as best as we can. But we can't say, listen, you know, you grew up, you were a good kid. You've got to get over this. Go do it. I mean, it's it's difficult to help other people, but they can be helped if they want to be helped, which I, I genuinely do believe that. Well, I, have, I can say a lot about that. First, I should I, – I don't think I fully answered one of your first questions, and that is the reason why I wrote the book. The reason I wrote the book is is because if I didn't have my friend to help me, I was hoping that there would be some type of book, at least some type of user manual that I could read that would tell me, here are your options, and this is how you follow, how this is how you follow these options. Well, there there was no book, and it wasn't until you know, a few years ago when I said, why it, don't we still have that book? And so that's why I wrote The Right Rehab. I wrote it to be a manual, a user guide for somebody to follow whether you have resources or not. Uh, and this book is for people who live on you know, Park Avenue all the way to Skid Row. And the reason for this book is so that wherever you are on that socioeconomic ladder, there is a treatment plan for you, no matter your, uh, your, how many resources you have or lack thereof. And that's what I do in the book. I, I do 
I get into details. I get into the weeds about how you get certain types of insurance, Medicaid and Medicare and public assistance, or and because or if you have no resources whatsoever, you can still get treatment. But it comes down to this, Denise, and you just said it. It comes down to the individual. I can do everything in the world to make treatment options available to an individual. But I can tell you, there's only one thing I can't do is that I can't get that person sober because that person has to surrender. That person has to commit to living a sober life. And if you're somebody, I tell parents of kids, when I say kids, I mean kids in their 20s and teenagers, I always say to parents, listen, the chances are that your child is going to relapse because your child is so young and there's so much that he or she still doesn't know. Because when you go to treatment, you go there to learn the tools of how to react to certain situations where instead of using, you actually will use another type of skill that you're taught through evidence-based treatment of not using. But many, many times people relapse. And Karen Swenson, who's a, who's a treatment executive and a, and a friend of mine, and the way that she explains it is that when people relapse, is, and they go back to treatment, it's only because they have need some more training of how to remember those, those tools that they learned and how they can still use those tools to, in order to live a life where they don't have to have the addiction managing them. In your book, you say that even after a year or two of remission achieved through treatment, it can take three to five more years before the risk of relapse drops below 15%. That's scary. Well, my, well, my, my, my friends in recovery, and believe me, I have friends who have had 50 years of recovery. They all, it usually takes, what they say to me is that it takes two to three years of really focusing for them on their life on sobriety and using all those tools that they've learned. It isn't until about year five of sobriety where even the Surgeon General says that's when the chances of somebody actually having a substance use disorder is, is at 15% or lower, which is what it is for people who never had a substance use disorder at all. So it but that, but the one ingredient in that whole time is commitment, is surrender to to knowing why you are the way you are, and what you have to do in order to manage this disease of of addiction. You know, and, and the, one thing I should say, excuse, one thing I should say, excuse me, Dave, is this. Now, people listening to this broadcast. I don't get the idea that I'm saying that you have, if you have a substance use disorder, if you know somebody who does, it is mandatory for that person to go to treatment. It is not. I know that residential treatment is where one really learns evidence based, through evidence-based treatment, why how you can go ahead and control addiction so it doesn't control you anymore. 
But that's not necessary for everybody because, number one, there's no such thing as one rehab fits all. That doesn't happen because you have to make sure that there's one, the treatment facility is going to fit that individual. For instance, there's no such thing as the best rehab. That doesn't exist. What does exist is a rehab that's the best one for a particular individual because of all the necessary factors that go into why that rehab is the right rehab for that particular individual. But I want to make it clear, too, is there are people who never go to treatment. There are people who go to 12-step meetings. That's their evidence-based therapy. That's their um, treatment is 12-step. So I just – but it all depends upon the individual because that's not true for most people. For most people, they actually need more tools that they will get through residential treatment in order to reach that that reward or that life of sobriety, whereas others – they can do it another way. And so it really does have to fit the individual. And see, that makes sense to me. I mean, just from a lifetime of observation, you know, watching other people and monitoring myself. You know, I just, watching people that I know and love, whether they're family members or friends' families going through alcoholism, drug addiction, bipolar disease, PTSD, you name it, it's painful to watch. And we can't ignore it. It's not something that we can ignore and say, oh, you know, it used to be, you know, that nobody talked about it. You put Aunt Mabel in the, in the attic, and that was pretty much the end of it. We don't do that anymore. No, no, not at all. And that's why, for instance, I really do think that, Addiction is something which we can really make sure that it's not the problem that it is today. And it, we, we really have to do a lot more in our country to make treatment available to those who want it. And if we can do that, it's, it'll, make a big, it'll make a huge impact you know, on our, on our society. And because all you have to do is also see how many people, unfortunately, I mean, the homeless, the homeless situation, especially in Los Angeles, it's, it's like escape from New York. It's like, it's just, it is, it is a disease that we really have to do something in order to not have a society where we treat the ones who are less fortunate in such a way that they have to live on people's sidewalks. They have to live on people's streets. One way to work on that is get these people into some sort of, some sort of treatment. Now, not everyone is going to do it. Not everybody wants to get sober, but the, but there are, but for the ones who want to get sober and for the ones who are also suffering from schizophrenia, we have to make treatment more available to them because it's been proven that treatment does. For instance, treatment is an economic stimulator because if you want somebody to join the workforce, if that person has an addiction or any type of uh, mental disorder or any type of injury, 
that keeps that person from working, instead of punishing that person, and instead of putting work requirements on that person to get Medicaid, for instance, it is much smarter economically for us. Let's put the money into getting this person sober, getting this person mental disorder treatment, because all of a sudden there's a magic, magic process that occurs. And that is when a person becomes healthy, that person can be employed. And when that person is employed, all of a sudden that person is a taxpayer. So all these treatment programs that should be expanded, they actually, you can't think of them as just a way of spending more money. You have to think of it as an investment, an investment in our country, because a stronger and a healthy person makes a stronger and a much more healthy economy. True. And that leads me back to you and I had a, a fascinating conversation about a week ago, and I made a note to ask you about getting into hospitals or about getting into care, whether you're being picked up from an ambulance or you're going voluntarily or whatever it is that's going to happen. You talked a lot about how it doesn't matter if you don't have a dime, you still can get into a hospital. Can we cover that? By all means, what it, what it means when if you walk into walk through the doors of a hospital and you unfortunately uh, need treatment, and sometimes it's emergency treatment, but many times you know people who don't have insurance and they wait until the last possible moment to get any type of medical care because they don't have insurance because they don't have any assets, any resources to pay for it. So it's the ones who can't go on any further they walk into a hospital and they go into the ER. Now, for hospitals, they the hospitals that take federal any type of federal payment, whether it be you know, reimbursement through Medicaid or reimbursement through Medicare, they are by law. They have forced force. By law, they have to treat anyone who comes through their doors, whether that person has insurance or whether that person doesn't have insurance or any type of resources. Now, the expense that's put into caring for that person, well, obviously, the hospital doesn't get it back. But so that's therefore called uncompensated care cost. And before Obamacare, as an example, before 2014, uh, they were the guide out to uh, $48.6 billion a year in this country. And then one year after Obamacare was put into effect, after 2014, they magically went down to $36 billion. Now, why is that? Well, that's because when people walk through the doors, they, the hospitals actually got c compensated because that person – had some type of insurance, whether it be through the marketplace or whether it be Medicaid. So Medicaid, so it, 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 it does work. And what we have to do is we have to expand the amount of money that the, the, the for, for, uh, for government, well, for, for treatment programs. Now, question, at the end of the day, when a hospital has uncompensated care cost, well, unfortunately, some hospitals 
will go after, will keep billing that individual. And unfortunately, it does lead to a bad credit report. And ultimately, a lot of times it leads to bankruptcy. However, the other way, and obviously the hospital doesn't get its money back, but after all is said and done, after all the dollars that are spent on uncompensated care costs, about 65% of those costs are eventually gained or you know paid to the hospital, whether it's through federal programs, state programs, charity. Okay, they get about 65% back. So then you ask yourself, well, what about the other 35%? Well, what happens is, and please listen up, everybody out there who is paying an insurance premium through a private policy, through Blue Cross, right now, or you have an employer-driven uh, policy, you still are paying for a part of the, part of the premium. Uh, what happens is that every year when the insurance companies negotiate with the hospitals what the reimbursement rates are going to be for the following year, well, that hospital takes into account all those uncompensated care costs they have not been for which they have not been reimbursed. So while, for instance, most governments around the world, when they talk, when they provide health care, usually it's tax it's usually it's taxpayer money usually it's government money that will fund these programs in our country everybody who has an insurance policy that premium you're paying every month part of that premium is driven entirely because of all the uncompensated care costs that a hospital has yet to to get so the bottom line is this yes you may have an insurance policy, but you still are paying for those people who could not pay, who could not have any insurance or any assets or any resources. They could not pay for their care. It's the insurance people. It's the people with, with insurance. They're the ones who are paying for it. See, I did not know that until you told me that, and I, I was shocked. I really was. I don't know why I was shocked because, you know, money is money and people are always going to find a way to get it back or scrape it back or earn it. I mean, money is important. But I had no idea that my personal insurance was also paying for everybody else in some kind of a bucket. I understand it to some level. don't like it much, I have to say. I mean, if I can afford my own insurance and I'm paying for it, isn't that my business? Apparently not. Well, you, you just hit upon something that's vitally, vitally important, and that is this. Healthcare is not like going into a dealership and buying a new car. You're not going to go right – you're not going to leave that dealership with a new car and having not paid for it. The same – but healthcare is different. If you have no money, you walk into a hospital, you're going to get care. Now, some people will say – why should I pay for that person who doesn't have any assets? Why should I pay for that person's care? That's because we're all in this together because that individual, if that individual gets well and can become a taxpayer, that is good for all of us. And let me say one thing here. When it comes to all insurance in 2020, 
the government paid a total of $1.697 trillion to subsidize everybody's insurance. I mean everybody. We're talking about Medicare. We're talking about Medicaid. We're talking about work-related coverage. We're talking about um, um, even even um, Medicare for those who are under 65 because of disabilities and also because of what people like to call Obamacare. Let me explain one thing about Obamacare. It is not government insurance. It's the government that's helping you purchase private insurance from companies like Blue Cross or Aetna uh, or the other insurance companies. They're providing you a subsidy so you can afford to buy a, a policy. It is not a handout. It's just simply one of the programs that fits into the $1.7 trillion the federal government spends annually subsidizing all the other health insurance uh, programs. And that even includes, of course, employer-based policies. But here's a dirty little secret about employer-driven policies. uh, 44 million people who have employer-driven policies, unfortunately, they're underinsured. So, Denise, here's a huge problem that's only going to get worse unless something is done about it, and that is this. When employees have to pay every year, they have to pay more and more of a larger uh, of their share of the premium, and then they see the deductibles and the out-of-pocket uh, maximum, see them continuously go up. That's it's, people, unfortunately, 44 million people have an insurance policy; they still can't afford to use it. Right. And that's because of all the cash that's necessary that they simply cannot afford. It's insane. It really is. And I need for you to go back, if you would, to the differences, because I don't know this myself. What is the difference between Medicare and Medicaid? I don't understand the difference at all, but I'm not to the point where I need either of them. Medicare is for people who are 65 and older. Medicaid is is for people who um, are primarily it's for uh, families who versus mothers and and children children are automatically covered and it's for families who don't have who don't make quite frankly who are not eligible for private insurance is what it is now here's here's the cruel thing about um, about Medicaid, and that is this, is that when Obamacare came out, um, part of Obamacare was that all the states would expand the Medicaid program to ensure as many people, to ensure everybody, basically. People who do not qualify for Obamacare for a private policy um, they can they would be eligible for Medicaid well one of the problems is that 12 states in our nation they have mainly in the south uh, red states as they say uh, have decided they're not going to expand their Medicaid program even in the beginning the the federal government were 
was paying for all of the Medicaid costs. And eventually that ratcheted down to like today it's 90%. So when a state refuses to, uh, refuses to expand their Medicaid program, they are refusing when the federal government paying for 90% of, of those costs. And I'm sorry, what was your question again? Because I have a habit of, of going on and on and on. Well, I didn't, I really don't understand, and I will need to at some point, the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. But Medicaid and, I guess and Medicare. My real question is Medicaid and Medicare. Where does all of this fit into rehab or, you know, the, the topic that we're talking about, substance abuse, mental problems? So how, do, how do either of these places help? Well, they help programs. in a tremendous way. Programs, not places, programs. No, they help in a tremendous way. So, f- for instance, Medicare, um, I will say, when it comes to substance use disorder treatment and mental disorder treatment, it, they, there are costs that they will cover. Unfortunately, they have to, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, they have really are hospital programs because most hospitals will take Medicare. Therefore, for somebody who's on Medicare, it's extremely difficult, it's extremely challenging to find a treatment facility, a rehab, that will take Medicare. And the reason for that is because the reimbursement rates for Medicare are so low, it's not worth it for a facility to, to take Medicare patients, unfortunately. However, there are hospitals that, that will take that. Now, let's talk about Medicaid. Well, Medicaid usually is a system where you don't get all the bells and whistles as you do with a private uh, insurance policy. For instance, in some states, Medicaid will not cover residential treatment. Most of them will cover stabilization or detox, but not residential treatment. But they will cover outpatient treatment. So in most states, so you can still get treatment, but you're not going to get the same type of treatment that you normally would if you had a private policy, but you can get treatment. And then I can give you an example like the state of California. If you're going to be on Medicaid, which is called Medi-Cal in California, California is the place to do it because they will subsidize up to six months of one substance use disorder treatment and it is extremely thorough and is and it is extremely uh proficient in what in what and what they're doing so if you want to if you have to be on uh, on a state's you know medicaid insurance california certainly you know is, is the place to be and let me just point out one thing about treatment and that is, it has been proven that the longer somebody is in treatment, the more, the higher the success rate of that person of staying in sobriety, of being able to finally get into a life of recovery. Now, com- typically, the conventional schedule for treatment is if someone is in crisis, whether uh, due to, um, you know, uh, due, due to addiction, uh, then needs to go to a hospital, that person would, that's called detox. A person would go to detox. And depending upon the drug 
or the substance. Okay, detox for somebody can last anywhere from three days all the way up, you know, to two weeks or, or even 10 days. The next stage after detox is called residential. And residential normally in the past, okay, was always 30, 28 or 30 days. Now, that's not a schedule that was set by doctors. That's a schedule that was set by insurance companies. Because, they, you know, they have to figure how they're going to pay, reimburse places for, for the treatment. And then, well, let's assume that 30 days is, is, is a conventional period that people, that the experts say that's how much time you need, at least for a residential. And then the second stage after that is called PHP, or partial hospitalization. And what that normally entails is frequently called residential light, which means that it, like in residential, the individual is living in the same setting or the same building where he or she is also getting treatment, uh, hence the word, the name residential. When you're in PHP, ordinarily, the individual will move into a separate facility, like normally what we would call a sober living house, versus the state of California. Some states, like California, have a law that when you have an individual who's in PHP, that person has to be living in a facility that's separate from the facility where that person is getting treatment. And that treatment normally will be a six or seven hour day, like residential, but you're no longer living in the setting. And then after 30 days of PHP, then, you, then the individual step down to a, to a, a stage of treatment called IOP, or intensive outpatient. Again, another 30 days. However, in IOP, it's really used as a, as a transition back into real life for that individual. For instance, normally treatment, sometimes treatment will start out at five days a week, two or three hours a day, and, but eventually it steps down to three treatments per week, three sessions per week. And they either occur, which could be two hours or three hours, most of the time they're two hours long, and most of the time it's group therapy. And they can be scheduled for an individual to take the morning uh, therapy sessions or in the evening. The reason is because during that time, the individual is encouraged to not only go out and get employment or go to school or do some type of community service. But the point is, is that that's when that person starts to ease back into real life. And then after day 90, what the best care for someone, the best route for someone to follow is follow what's called RSS or Recovery Support Services. What that means is that an individual will live in a sober living environment, um, will go to group therapy at least once a week, and go to individual therapy once a week if resources allow. But here's the really important ingredient. Besides uh, transitioning back into real life with a job or school, 12-step meetings are vitally, vitally important for most people. Some people don't like 12-step. Some people will use another means of uh, support uh, from people who also are like that person, you know, who, are, who want to recover, who want to finally get into a life of recovery. But AA, where NA 
they have been absolutely monumental in people's recovery. And my friends who have had 45 years, 50 years of recovery, they credit AA for that. And AA meetings is a, is a process that starts when that person is in residential treatment. So, so it goes all through the whole stages of treatment, and hopefully people will continue to, keep, to go to meetings for the rest of, of their lives. One note about sober living, and that is this. Not all sober living houses are alike either, but I will say that there are studies that show that when you're in sober living, you should be in there, be in sober living for a minimum of one year. The statistics show that the longer one is in sober living, three years is ideal. The better the chances, the better the rates of sustained recovery for that individual. And see, that makes perfect sense. And look, let's face it, addiction, and you say this in your book, is caused by stress. And we're at about, as far as I can tell, we're at about the most stressful time in, I don't know, our nation, in history. We've been going through some serious garbage over the last couple of years, or maybe it's just kind of come to a head in the last couple of years, but, you know, Mankind is in a bit of a mess right now. I, mean, I, I make a joke about this. I'm not entirely sure I'm joking, but I feel like we're in a giant anthill. You know, we're in a giant terrarium, yeah. with a big, you know, ant farm, and that we're at yeah. end times. Yeah. You know, God is just about tired of the mess that we've made. The terrarium stinks. He's probably about to dump it over and start again. We're in a mess. We are in a mess, and we have stress like I don't think anybody has ever seen. Well, unfortunately, you're you're you are totally you know absolutely correct, and one way, and I'm telling you right now, and I'm not the first person to tell you this. I'm simply explaining what the experts say, and that is is that the more treatment that we make available, the better off our society is going to be. There's absolutely no question about that at all, because you know after all. What is addiction? Addiction, it's a chronic, it's a long-term illness, and it results, most, most experts will tell you that it results from this, a complex interplay between one's genes and, and environment. So as an example, there are many factors that go into um, causes of addiction, or at least they are helping the addiction disease, you know, be chronic in an individual. And one, of course, is trauma, uh, which is caused by either physical, emotional, or even sexual abuse. And then, of course, there's neglect. Is there a family history of addiction? Uh, Is there parental substance use at, at home? And what about the household? How stable is the household? It's definitely the household instability has a big effect upon an individual who's living in that home. And then, of course, the availability of drugs or alcohol. And one thing that you mentioned is exposure to stress. Because when somebody, people who are predisposed or people who use substances, 
it's because they need to reach out for something which will relieve the stress of a particular situation. The great thing about evidence-based treatment is that it teaches an, an individual how to deal with those stressful situations well, without resorting to having to use a, um, a, a substance. So it's, um, it's the evidence-based treatment, basically it, it increases one's life skills, uh, such as you gotta identify the problem, and you've got to be motivated to, to change that problem. And one of the issues is when you um, have, unfortunately, addiction, the, the thing about addiction is that it does everything in the world it can to defend itself. So if it means walking all over your family, if it means, you know, losing your job, if it means walking all over your friends, you know, it doesn't matter because it's the addiction that's, um, that's, that's driving that. And the, but we do have a way of dealing with it, and it's, it's just a matter of how do we uh, increase treatment availability. And like I mentioned before, you have to look at treatment as being an investment because there are many studies. The first one that really made an impact was in 2016 that was partially financed by the Wood um, Foundation, and it came out that for every dollar that is spent on treatment for someone, it returns a net benefit of a um, low from a low of four dollars per dollar spent to seven dollars, or even in some cases, it's five figures that it returns in net benefits, and that's to the benefit of society as a whole. So one state in our nation is doing an absolutely brilliant job at explaining how treatment produces a net benefit, and that's the state of Washington. They have a website that is changed in real time about that deals with how much money the state of Washington is subsidizing treatment for its citizens, and they have an ongoing study that shows what is the net benefit of that particular treatment, of that particular malaise, of that malady, and then the treatment for it. It is mesmerizing. So when people say that somebody who has an addiction or even a mental disorder, well, that's that person's, that, that is that person's incorrect. That is our problem because an investment in that individual will yield a net benefit for society as a whole. I understand that. I agree with you. Listen, we've got about a minute left. So quickly, before I let you go, where do people – I mean, we started this out you don't have to be alone. You can find help. Where do you – where should people go? They've got that phone call. They're out of their minds with fear and worry. What do they do? What's the first step they should take? Well, of course, being the author of a book that has th that outlines for you how for an individual and for a family of what they have to do, of course, I would say that they should buy my book, The Right Rehab, and they can get it on Amazon, on Amazon.com. If that's not going to happen or if that's not possible, one way is to 
do you know a family? Do you know anybody who has gone through or they're going through the same thing as you? They're going to have a lot more mileage on, on this than you are. So get as much information from that individual and that family as possible. Also, frequently attorneys, uh, especially defense attorneys. Like I get calls from defense attorneys all the time. Defense attorneys have more information about programs than the normal person on the street. You can also go to a hospital. If you go to the emergency room, you want to go to a hospital that has a behavioral health program, and you can find out by calling the emergency room and finding out if they will uh, if they do that because they have case managers, and these case managers, when they have somebody uh, admitted to the hospital, they will then plan an aftercare program for that individual. So they know the resources locally, the case managers in hospitals. You can, and the other way to go about this is you could also call your state's Medicaid office. You can call your state's Medicare office. Is that their specialty? No, but they can tell you who to call. They can get you further down the path. But of course, I am the author of a book, so I would love for you to buy my book because it explains everything, and not only does it tell you how the different sources that are available to you, but I also explain how you can reach them and how you can also get insurance. So obviously, that's my first choice. (laughs) Totally understand. Before I let you go, where can people find you? Go to therightrehab.com. And you will also see um, an email uh, address for me. It's, you can, uh, it's called info at the right rehab.com. You send me an, an email and I will get back to you uh, right away. And that's actually the very, very best uh, way other than you can also call me. And my toll-free number is 855-702-7474. So this is Walter Wolf of The Right Rehab, and you can call me at 855-702-7474 or go to therightrehab.com. Walter, thank you so much. It's been wonderful and awful speaking with you. I mean, my stomach hurts. (laughs) I hear that a lot. (laughs) And you know I'm not insulting you, but just listening to this and reading the book, I'm just thinking the things that I don't know are astonishing to me because – we are surrounded by people who are just in complete meltdown, stress, money issues, drug issues, mental issues. And, you know, it's, it's a frightening world out there right now, and we can help. So thank you so much. It's been wonderful speaking with you, and I thank you for all of the terrific tips and the advice that you have shared with our audience, and I hope they will take all of your advice. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes and anywhere else you consume your business podcast. Just look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Walter, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Denise. The pleasure was definitely mine. Thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, Contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.